software is broken, but it can be fixed, TestDouble's superpower is improving how the world builds software by building both great software and great teams. And you can help. TestDouble is hiring empathetic senior software engineers and DevOps engineers. We work in Ruby, JavaScript, Elixir, and a lot more. TestDouble trusts developers with autonomy and flexibility at a remote 100% employee-owned software consulting agency. Looking for more challenges? Enjoy lots of variety while working with the best teams in tech as a developer consultant at TestDouble. Find out more and check out remote openings at link.testdouble.com slash greater. That's link.testdouble.com slash greater. Welcome to Greater Than Code, episode 258. I'm John Sowers, and I'm here with May. Hi there. Also with us is Casey Watts. Hi, I'm Casey, and we're all here today with Mike, the nerd therapist. Mike is a mental health counselor from Perth, Western Australia, and he does geeky therapy. He runs programs in which they use video games and tabletop games in therapy, like Civ, Minecraft, Fortnite, and Dungeons and Dragons. Mike also writes the Pop Culture Competence Project, which is a resource for parents, teachers, and therapists, and seeks to boost professionals' awareness and understanding of the themes and applications of nerd culture. Welcome, Mike. Hey, thanks for having me. All right, it's time for that question we prepared you for. (laughs) We want to know, Mike, to kick off the episode, what is your superpower, and how did you acquire it? My superpower, I'd say I've been told by people whose opinions I trust is networking. You know, in my last job, I was actually known to a few people before I even got there. And then my previous job, when I worked in school counseling, I knew most of the applicants for new roles. And I knew before the manager of our agency knew that they'd been picked up for jobs. Yeah, I love community. And I kind of found this out after kind of recovering from social anxiety that I just love community and building networks and meeting people. And that's kind of evolved very naturally into creating professional spaces and working in professional spaces and just getting to know and to meet people. That's awesome. How did you acquire this skill, networking and community building? When I see a need, I'm driven to fill it, which that may actually have been a better answer to begin with. But hey, we're committed to this answer. So during my degree, We had an opportunity to do some training in a program called Mental Health First Aid. It's a really good piece of training. It's meant for like bystander, civilian level people, but it's it's a professional grade training. It's really good. And my university said, you have to organize this. So just organize this on your own time. But we thought this might be cool to share with you. So I contacted the trainer and she goes, listen, it's two grand to book the weekend. But if you can get a group of 20 people together, it's 100 per person. So I'm like, yeah, okay. So I got 20 people together and we did that. And then I kind of sat there at the end of the second day of training. I'm like, we could do this again. And about three months later, we did some more mental health training. We did some severe critical mental health training. Uh, A couple months later, we did it again with a special victims ward of our local hospital. And then, yeah, we did probably about four training courses that year. And we actually were all in our second or third year of our degrees, but we were as qualified as graduates to actually deliver programs. 
it's kind of I discovered that it is able to get out there and get people together to accomplish something. I love that, Mike. I find also sometimes I want to stay in community, but I'm so oriented to goals and outcomes that I try to do it around projects. And so I'm I'm a much more reliable buddy on keeping in touch if we're working on something together. And I'm curious, it sounds similar to what you said, but maybe different. And I don't know if it uh, resonates with you. No, I, I hear you. If I'm in proximity to someone or we're working on something, I find it way easier to keep in touch. Yeah, especially when you know we're workmates or studying or something. I do find it better if there's kind of not a reason to give someone a message, but I do find it easier to stay engaged if we're working towards something. And that community of professionals that I'd actually built up, the long-term goal was to become a volunteering agency. But unfortunately, just being uh, uni students, what we had planned was a little bit out of our scope, and no one would insure us. <laughs> <laughs> the bureaucracy bites it does it was also my call because the original plan was to put mental health workers so we've got a part of our city is just devoted to nightclubs and the overall plan was to put mental health crisis workers in the nightclub district so that you know if some drunk girl gets kicked out of a club one of our team can make sure she gets into a taxi safely or just someone's having a moment you know as a former nightclub bartender nights don't always go well so just having like some mental health first aid trained people in the city that can kind of de-escalate and bring people down to a safe place that was the goal but unfortunately that also involved putting a whole bunch of 18 to 22 year olds in the nightclub district on weekends and it would have been it was a logistical nightmare to do that ethically and safely i think i've heard of like bartender training uh, or like professionals oh the the story the specific story i've heard of was training barbers I think it was in New York City to have this kind of like mental health first aid triage or connecting people to services that would be helpful for them. So like this idea is, is really powerful, I think. It is really good because it's really helpful because people, you know, there's two types of people that people tell everything. That's barbers or you know, hairdressers and bartenders. And that was kind of the goal. We actually have a similar program here in Australia where we're teaching hairdressers and barbers, we're actually providing them domestic violence training. So that they can kind of recognize signs and know who to talk to next. Because if there are people in society who are being told everything, because you know, it's a very intimate kind of position, it would be a missed opportunity to do some good, but also to provide these people some training so they can handle it. Because I'm like, as a bartender, I heard a lot of stuff that would be challenging to hear if I wasn't already like an experienced mental health professional while I was doing it. So these programs, I love that they're recognizing this is the thing that happens. And I'm also really hoping that they're teaching these people how to actually support themselves when they're hearing the rough stuff. Yeah. I wonder what percentage of bartenders and barbers get any kind of training. 1% would be better than I would have thought a year ago. Honestly, I wouldn't know. I haven't been something I've been engaged with. My city... Perth, we're actually, we've got a big focus on mental health at the moment. There's a few charities working in the industry trying to support people from an employee perspective, but also from an industry perspective, because bartending doesn't lead to the healthiest lifestyles. I was thinking it sort of reminds me of, there's a, an organization called MAPS that does research into psychedelics, and they provide counselors, for example, at Burning Man or at other places where people are going to be doing a lot of these things trained in like dealing with people having problems while they're on psychedelics. And so they were able to, you know, talk people down and keep them centered and get them into a good place. And I, I think it's so 
powerful to acknowledge that people are going to be doing these things. People are going to yeah. be doing drugs. They're going to be going out in the, in the evening. They're going to have a night out, but they're, they're not always going to go well. And having a support system right there is, I think, so important versus waiting till it spirals so much more than it would otherwise. And then, you know, police are involved and, you know, every goes downhill from there. Oh, 100%. It's all about the harm reduction. I actually didn't know they did that. That's a really great initiative. Love it. I was going to bring up Burning Man and mutual aid and so many different community conveners are in touch with how much mental health is connected to all the other things. And my dad owns a biker bar and I'm uh, five feet tall and it has been interesting to bartend there and in rural upstate New York, figure out how to navigate the the after midnight hours. <laughs> <laughs> that would be interesting. <laughs> I was once contacted about providing mental health and emotional support at a BDSM night. And mm. that would have been a really interesting. Unfortunately, I was busy because when you're bartending, you're already working weekends. But I liked that the organizers were looking for some support for you know these events. And they ended up doing the mental health first aid training as well, nice. which was really That's cool. Awesome. Yeah. I'm thinking about all this in the sales funnel framework. So like, how do you get people into the top of the funnel in the first place? It's often the missing step. Like you got to get people exposed to the idea that they could take the training and then they have to be interested and they have to decide to do it and get to the barrier of scheduling and paying. And then then same for applying it. It's like a process. And I love that we're talking about the top of the funnel because a lot of the conversations in the bottom of the funnel, like go to a therapist. Mm. I mean, it's a series of funnels, but yeah, very top of the stopmost one. And that's the big part of the conversation is a lot of these, a lot of people don't know these services exist, like mental health first aid. If you go to like any given mental health first aid training course, it will doubtless be mostly filled with people who work in mental health or people who work near mental health, like teachers. Uh, when it's designed to be a bystander level course, it's designed for people. So if you were a literally anyone who doesn't work in mental health, that's who the course is for. And getting people out there who can actually provide support is so important for that ground level stuff so we can head off a crisis. I wonder if it might be useful to talk about some definitions for a moment and people who don't identify as having any mental health challenges or know anybody in their life. It can sound really big. Mm. So just to say, maybe from your perspective, how would you define mental health? And my opener uh, leading question caveat is that I don't understand how we all don't just have orientations toward external support. And there's a lot of stigma stuff. So just hoping to break down some of that. So for any listeners who have less experience with this whole framework could have some access points. The problem I experience with mental health is that people only ever use the phrase mental health to refer to times when something's not working correctly or when something's wrong, there's a crisis. It's very rarely comes up in terms of positive mental health and things going well. It's always disordered. That's a problem because it would just be nice to not have the phrase mental health be synonymous with not doing well, mental <laughs> mental anguish. Yeah, well said. That sounds like it would be the literal term for it, health of the mental It type, does. But it is not. 
and so, you know, semantically it is, but whenever we talk, you know, when we talk about mental health, we're almost always talking about disorders or experiences like uh, trauma. And it becomes really challenging because we see a lot of these big conversations and it's harder than it has to be because a lot of people, a lot of people self-invalidate. They'll go, oh, you know, I'm just experiencing this. It's not as bad as what this person's going through or this news article I've seen. And I guess the one thing I tell a lot of people is that your experiences are valid and your what your feelings are just because you don't have it as bad as the next person doesn't mean you still don't have it bad. We have this idea called dialectics, which basically distills down to two seemingly contradictory concepts can peacefully coexist. And that in this context, when other people have it bad, and I can also have it bad, even though it's not, it doesn't seem to be as bad as them. Yeah, I really love moving away from comparative definitions into self-assessment stuff. Is that where you were going to go, John? Well, I, I was noting that, like, you know, I frequent the um, CPTSD subreddit for complex PTSD. Mm. And the number of people in there who have had truly horrific experiences that are having that same argument with themselves. Oh, but, yeah. you know. I wasn't actually murdered as a child. So like other people had it like, and it's, it's really heartbreaking to see someone, you know, having had such experiences and still invalidating them and still thinking they're not worthy of treatment and support. I attended a training when I worked in schools and some of the participants there were from a very prestigious private school in my state. They were teachers. They were year leaders. They were, the, I think the principal was there. There was a high, close to a third of the classes from this one high school. And the thing they all said their students face was everyone just assumes they don't have problems because they're rich, or everyone assumes their problems can't be solved with money. And we can solve a lot of problems with money, don't get me wrong. But it really just kind of brought to mind this comparison that these privileged kids must be experiencing. It would be hard for them to go because people are very invalidating of that because they have means and access. This is a really interesting thing that I'd never really considered. Are you familiar with the study about the amount of money at which point any more money does not lead to more happiness? Like there's basic needs and mm. and some comfort. And then after that, the more money really does not have a direct correlation to happiness. But on the below that for sure. I did. I only read that a couple of weeks ago. It was really cool. It was uh, it was titled like uh, "Money Does Buy Happiness, but It Suffers from Diminishing Returns," and I really enjoyed reading that because it's true. A lot of problems, a lot of issues that a lot of people face, is systemic and it's financial. There's a whole lot of stresses out there that wouldn't be stresses if we could just afford the way to solve it. But unfortunately, yeah, people don't always get that or understand that. You know, we get these trite little sayings like money doesn't buy happiness. It's like, well, yeah, but it puts food on the table and it buys medicine and it pays for therapy. It, it buys a lot of happiness up to a point. <laughs> it's a more nuanced phrase, less catchy, maybe. Yeah. But I'd rather have that one. Mm. My life and experience of life and others did change when I could afford my bills. And I didn't have mm. to check my bank account every day to figure it out. And the amount of hours that I would have to spend in order to make sure that my bills were taken care of, like to be poor is significantly more expensive. Mm -hmm. Oh, it is. Which 
compounds mental health challenges as well. It's like the um, that line from well, it's not a line; it's like a whole page, but it's from a Discworld, not from Terry, Terry Pratchett's Discworld novels, and it goes into the uh, the Boots theory of poverty. And a rich man can spend fifty dollars on boots that'll last him all year, but a poor man will have to spend ten dollars a month on boots that'll only last him the month. But he can't afford that fifty dollars. All he can afford is the ten dollars. So it's more expensive. It's more expensive to be in poverty because you have to buy poorer quality items. Yeah, I, I had always wished that some high-powered economist could actually crunch the numbers on on what the curve is like at what level of income does it stop being more expensive to be poor and then i assume that there's sort of a the opposite curve where the more money doesn't do anything but i know there's a curve there and it would be super curious to know what that looks like that would be really interesting to read i'm not a big money person I don't like those conversations. I really struggle with business and finance sort of stuff. But I would read that article in a heartbeat to figure out where is, where's the line. I want to hear the original one adjusted for inflation too. The original study saying money doesn't buy happiness is probably old at this point. Mm -hmm. I think the dollar has doubled in or halved in value since 1990 to today. Did you all know that? I look it up once in a while. I try to see. Uh, the sodas I bought as a kid, how much are they inflated to today? And it is $2. It used to be $1 for a soda. So anyway, I, for all these studies, double it at this point, if you're not sure. A comment on the money thoughts. There's this book that's now a couple years old circulating called Decolonizing Wealth. It's mostly focused on fundraising and the development discipline and philanthropy and how all of that happens behind the scenes, but it's written by a man who is indigenous and has some really interesting takes on money and how and when and why it flows. And I think you might appreciate that one too, Mike. That would be an interesting read. Yeah, I think I'm going to track that down. Let's link it. Uh, By the way, we also have noted that we will link mental health first aid, which I encourage all the listeners to take. I haven't taken it myself, but everyone I know who's taken it raves about it afterwards. It's so helpful. It's practical. It is such a good piece of training. I can't speak for other ones, but the provider I had came from a youth not-for-profit who are based in Melbourne on the other side of Australia. They come over to Perth, my city, to deliver it. And I picked up more practical information in a two-day course than I probably did at six months at uni. And that's speaking more about the quality of the course than the quality of my education, because my uni was great. But the course was so, it was a big two days because you were covering some huge topics. And I always experience what I call a course hangover, because it's two days of thinking about some really heavy stuff. So I always leave with migraines. But it is such a powerful skill set, and I wish it was more available to the general public. Yeah, actually, my company's making a big push to get people that training which I'm super excited about. Awesome. Brilliant. There's lots of different variants too. So there's uh, mental health first aid is the standard. There's children's mental health first aid. And all the different variants kind of focus more on the issues that affect that group. So there's children's mental health first aid. I haven't done that one. There's teen mental health first aid that focuses a lot on um, anxiety and eating disorders. There's a youth mental health first aid, which is like everyone from 5 to 25. And that focuses a lot on like substances, eating, and anxiety again. There's uh, older people's mental health first aid. Again, I haven't done it, but it sounds really good. 
And there's even one, and I really want to do this. It's an uh, Indigenous Australians mental health first aid. It teaches how to be like culturally appropriate in terms of mental health delivery. Love all of this. Yeah, that, that's amazing. In listening to your bio, Mike, I couldn't help but think of, and I wonder if you could share a little bit about if you're familiar with her work and if it has some overlap, but Jane McGonigal's TED Talk about mental health and gaming. It's a little older now. I feel like I've watched I've watched a TED talk. Is it gaming can is that the gaming can make a better world one? Yeah, she's got I a have couple actually. This. And she was one of the early proponents of involving gaming in engaging people in mm. perhaps non-standard talk therapy ways and the gamification of positive healthy habits. Yeah. Which sounds right up your alley so regardless if you're familiar with her maybe if you want to tell us a little bit more about some of your applications and approaches sure thing i ha- i do remember re- uh, watching i watched her ted talk when i was at uni and i thought it was amazing oh for the last little bit over a year i've run nerdy therapy so i started off as a counselor working in schools like elementary schools and play well, yeah, September last year. So we've got our own like therapists have a million Facebook groups uh, for location, for speciality, for their needs. Just really, if you can think of like a niche reason to have a group, there is one. So I'm in a few of them, and there's recurring questions about, hey, what's Fortnite? What's Minecraft? What's Pokemon? And a lot of the answers they were being given were actually pretty disingenuous. Someone literally called Pokemon a children's dog fighting game. Which isn't wrong, but it's also completely inaccurate. <laughs> Pokemon are consenting wow. at the very least. It's a very healthy industry. And I realized these people who were working with kids were getting very tarnished views of the media these kids are engaging in. And it's going to be hard to engage in a positive way if you, if you actually have been told and you believe that children are engaging in recreational murder. So I started writing up whole essays in Facebook comments. I was that person. And it was getting tiring finding them again and reposting them because I didn't have the foresight to save them to a Word document for reuse later. So I made a website and I called it The Nerd Therapist. And it was, hey, this is Fortnite. This is a simplified overview of what it is. Here is why people like it. And I really enjoyed writing that segment because it made me think that Fortnite's one of the most inclusive games ever made in terms of access because it'll run on almost any device and everyone can play together so you've got like that one kid in the friend group who doesn't have the newest console or has an xbox and all his friends have playstations that kid doesn't get left out and i love that because that would happen with a lot of games and i write you know why they're into it what makes it fun and like finish it off with a segment like okay here's how you use it in therapy you can use it to build communication skills you can use it to build teamwork abilities you can just use it to think about uh, mental health and defenses and your own strategies. There's a lot of symbolism. And, you know, don't talk so much smack about the Battle Royale genre when everyone's favorite book for a few years was a Battle Royale book by the name of The Hunger Games. And <laughs> I create this project. And for a few months, I run it in secret because I'm like, you know what? I don't feel confident sharing that I'm doing this with people because I'm going to get called unprofessional. It's going to get nasty because I'm out there telling this industry, these people with a very uncharitable view towards video games that they can actually think about video games and anime and superheroes in a productive way. 
I started that this September 4th last year, and I'm yet to receive a single negative comment on the internet. What? Um, yeah. <laughs> Even that's after two Reddit AMAs. And that's wow a hell of an achievement for anyone who gets the internet to any degree. So after about two or three months, I went public with them. I'm like, okay, this is me. This is what I do. I took the shot. I shot my shot. And then I got asked by someone uh, who contacted me for the project for some advice. They go, Have you ever, do you run D&D as therapy? And I sat there for a second and I'm thinking, why the hell don't I run D&D as therapy? <laughs> yeah. Because I'd read, I'd read the studies. I'd, I'd read the awesome articles about people doing it. And I'm like, why the hell haven't I done this yet? So I probably spent the next month reading through research and figuring out how to do it. It was my obsession. And then I introduced to the program and I started running D&D as therapy. And then I completely rebranded, um, you know, because I had a I had a counseling practice at the time, but the Facebook page was very neutral earth tones, very touchy-feely, just kind of nice counselor, but very generic counselor. And I just went, no, this isn't me. This is, this is, uh, I'm cosplaying as a therapist here. This isn't really who I am. I had a lot of mountain imagery. Uh, and I'm like, you know what? No. So I rebrand, I become the nerd therapist, and I change my page, uh, my project's name to Pop Culture Competence, because I'm advocating for movies, anime, media in general, to be more recognized as an element of cultural understanding, because at the moment it's not. There isn't someone you can go to, you know, there's a consultant for every cultural group, every cultural religious group, there'll be someone in this community who runs a project or organization so you can learn more about them and how to engage them in therapy. But until this project started, I was not aware of, and I still haven't found just a free, simple resource you can go to when you need to know about nerds. And when you work in primary schools, they may not be nerdy, but every kid's playing Fortnite. Mm -hmm. So if your view of that is not charitable, it doesn't help your relationship with them. And the kids can tell. Every little facial expression that an adult pulls that when they're hearing about games and they don't want to hear about games, the kids pick up on it and it, it, it hurts a little. Yeah. I actually got sent by a colleague, uh, well, friends that are working in the United States I actually have a list of uh, phrases that um, will shut down any conversation with a gamer. And it was really cool to read because it's basically a list of like nerdy microaggressions. It was really fascinating to read and I'll, I'll share some with you. Yes, please. Yes. If you want to shut down a conversation with a gamer, you play what now? Oh, I heard that game was violent. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's bad. Yeah. <laughs> all that phrase is all you need to tell a kid that you don't actually care about what they're into. Is that you're just believing whatever's been on the news about it or whatever other people have told you, and you're not willing to listen to them about why you're really just friggin' thrilled that you figured out how to make something in Minecraft. It's digital Lego. You can't malign Minecraft. You can malign Notch, who made Minecraft, but he's out of the picture now. But yeah, you get a lot of the, you know, I get a lot of calls from people whose kids have been invalidated and belittled by therapists for playing games, or whose parenting skills have been brought into question by therapists for allowing them to play games. Mm. I've, I've said this since I was about eight years old, but I'm not going to take criticism on gaming from people who watch an equal amount of TV. I love it. 
I love thinking of you at eight years old having that to say as well. <laughs> I, I was a mouthy eight-year-old. <laughs> but it's that invalidation and it stops conversations from happening. So I started this project so I can at least boost understanding. And probably the best article I wrote was the one that really pushed what I was willing to say was I did an article on Grand Theft Auto. And mm. that was a calculated risk because I'm like, okay, here's played like the most famous game for being kind of what people accuse it of being. And I enjoy GTA, but at the end of the day, it is what it is. So I wrote about it. I'm like, look, this is Grand Theft Auto. First, I have to start off by saying, look, I don't uh, um, advocate for any of the in-game actions because <laughs> of all the legal stuff. But if you want to start with it, this is what you can do. I gave a brief rundown of the history, and then I started talking about the plot of, of Grand Theft Auto V, because GTA V have a plot. I so talked about the social commentary in it and the political commentary in it, about how, especially in GTA V, crime isn't portrayed as particularly glamorous or without risk. It's a game where a lot of people die simply for being involved with you. I used it to talk about the socioeconomic determinants of crime and what leads people to do crimes uh, and how it's way more than presented because GTA V actually gave us some storylines. It's you, know, you had Franklin, who's just raised in, raised in the hood, raised in the cycle of gang violence and trying to break out of it. And you had Michael, who peaked in high school and never really managed, and his only real thing that he could figure out was crime and then even i finish again finish off that article with here's how to use gta's imagery to boost uh communication and teamwork because you need to have a good cohesive team who communicates in order to pull off a heist and yeah that one was a tricky one to write because gta is infamous and that article got actually got some good good reception i got even got some messages from some people with really impressive job titles and like i have never thought about gta in this way before I'm like, yeah. That's awesome. You're really taking the perspective of other people, including yourself, I guess, in this case. But like, what what do people enjoy in this? And how can it make sense to someone who doesn't get it? You're validating. Yeah, and that's what I try to do. That's what I try to say. Like, even for stuff I'm not a big fan of. Like, I'm not a huge fan of Five Nights at Freddy's. Just not my kind of game. But I still did an article on it, and I gave it its validation. Oh, this is what it's about. And also, while we're here... Can we talk about how there's no kids horror and kids are seeking out horror content and they're having to go out of their age range because they don't make horror for kids. And yeah, horror for kids would be incredibly tricky to pull off and it would be a huge niche, but it's also better than being greeted by a group full, a group of third graders who've just watched Stephen King's it. Cause I won't even sit down and watch that movie. I don't like seeing kids get hurt. I don't know how we'd get it done, but I, I just feel like, Kids like to be scared, they like to be startled, you know, they like suspense, and that they seek out horror. So we get a lot of kids into stuff like Five Nights at Freddy's or Slenderman, despite it being not appropriate at all. And I just wish there was, like, more age-appropriate horror for younger viewers. Ooh, I love what you just said. Age-appropriate horror. That, mm. I do think, is... Um uh an untapped market right there market need i personally like have always moved away from horror even as a kid there was some movie i don't remember what it was but it ended up not being a scary movie in the end i think it was the one where there were like the little roller um oh, animals critters. that 
Yes, Critters. Yeah. Yes, John. Thank you. We went to the movies as a, a family, and and we were going to see Critters, and I was like, mm, I can't do it. It's too scary. And I left, and instead I went into um, the Jackie Gleason movie where he's dying. <laughs> Like this super heavy drama, like that's where I went as a kid. But you're you're helping me because I do have, uh, and and the older I get, the the stronger it becomes. Some you know judginess and and aversion toward violence and hatred and horror, mm. and I don't totally support my niece's, uh, you know, five hour a day TikTok habit. So <laughs> there are ways in which um, I don't want to be like, boy, that rock and roll is really messing with the kids today. <laughs> but I also, uh, I don't know, there's pieces in there that I don't love, like the portrayals of women from the Grand Theft Auto posters I've seen or... Mm. There's stuff that I don't know is awesome, even when there there's other things that are skills based that we all could use more of. No, I hear that. And that's kind of another thing I address, like in the top of my Call of Duty and Grand Theft Auto post. I'm like, look, these aren't for kids. These are not for kids. They are explicitly not for kids. But kind of that acceptance of kids are playing them. And we've got to look at what we can do in that scope if we're not stopping access entirely. And that can be really challenging. Because, yeah, GTA is... It, it aims to be problematic. <laughs> and I still <laughs> enjoy parts of it for what it is, in that not a lot of games will just let you drive around a city uh, without being incredibly boring. And that's what... Like, I've talked with a lot of parents whose younger kids play GTA... But it's not for the violence, it's not for the killing, it's just for being let loose on a city with a car. Because there's not a lot of games where you can just kind of drive around a city. And if there are, there's some sort of caveat, like you've got to, like in Crazy Taxi, you know, your mission's only going to last for 90 seconds or something. It's just kind of that free roaming freedom. And that's kind of one of the things I do bring up, is like, look, these aren't appropriate, here's what they're getting out of it. Maybe let's think about some alternatives. And unfortunately, there's not always alternatives. And I always come back to stuff like Five Nights at Freddy's and the horror genre. And they're seeking out these age inappropriate things because there isn't much age appropriate for them. One of my favorite movies when I was eight was Starship Troopers. And I still love Starship Troopers. But there's nothing kind of really in that big gung-ho military satire sci-fi for my age group at the time. Yeah. And I, I can't say that I'm any sort of expert in this, but one way to approach, say, your 12-year-old niece comes to you saying how much they love Grand Theft Auto and they've been playing it, you know, five hours a weekend, whatever. May, like, your reaction is like, well, okay, I can see there's fun stuff, but there's also the stuff that makes me cringy and I'm really uncomfortable with. And, and I'm thinking that that can actually be a a point of communication. Yeah. 100%. Like you, you can, and you can, for, you can relate to them about what they're doing and what they're enjoying about it. And then you can just say, well, well, what did you think about that other thing? Like, was that something you thought was cool or were you a little uncomfortable or like, you can use that to discuss, like you were saying, Mike, about the, the, the social determinants of crime in the world that it exists. And like, you can, you can start conversations on that because they're portrayed in the game world. 
yeah, they're a great, they're a great prompt. It's like, hey, you know, you've seen this thing happen in the game. Is that something you'd like to talk about? And if you've got adults that a kid can trust to have that conversation, you can actually start conversations rather than end them. So if you know you hear a kid say, "Oh, I'm really into," you know, we'll keep going with Grand Theft Auto. I'm really into Grand Theft Auto. It's like cool. And instead of dumping on GTA, saying, "Oh, that's not appropriate. Let's do something else." You can actually start a conversation and go, yeah, how did you feel about that scene where Michael's daughter is trying to get onto a reality show and she's being exploited by Laszlo? And you can talk about some of these really big topics if that's where you want to go. And that's kind of at the end of every article, I talk about themes. And it's, you know, here's where you could go if you want to have a conversation. Here's some of the topics you could go into. I do a lot of like values-based work and that's where we can kind of look at where we can go from here. It's like, how do you have a conversation with people about using Among Us, for instance? Or what conversations can you start? My uh, therapist friends, Among Us was their go-to last year. Mm. It was also the zeitgeist, the most popular thing. But to do during therapy with kids was Among Us, totally. Yeah, I wasn't, I didn't use Among Us in, in the work, but I still have it on my phone. And, you know, we just kind of, again, covered it in articles. Like, here's the conversations you can have with it. You know, here's how you can talk about, here's a way to look at intrusive thoughts as being this little imposter trying to tell you you are what you're not. Uh, one game I'm currently playing, and again, looking at gaming and decision making, one game I'm currently playing is Civ, uh, Civilization Six, And we're looking at values in terms of like hey you know what kind of city are you going to be are you going to look more at military you're going to look more at economics trade politics where's your decision making going and then you can look at decision making by the turn it's like hey you know this city's been at war with you for a little while you know you've been at war with italy for a couple of turns now what are you thinking of doing and you can kind of look at you know why what logic and what values are driving your decisions yeah totally and just for the record, I don't, uh, I'm not an advocate of all that much censorship, but just, uh, well, what I usually say is, listen, Nisi, you are in charge of your brain and the stuff that you put in there, it affects how you think about yourself and others. And so it's up to you, you know, and there are things that you're going to be curious about and going to want to know about but just as long as you're yeah having a more meta view which I don't say it that way but like yeah I think it's it's food it's mental food Mm. all the things that we engage ourselves in these topics among them and you know we can be healthy consumers of Mm. information to go back to that word health or we can uh Eat lots of candy, which I definitely do sometimes. And that's 100% accurate, like, especially in terms of, I'm actually looking at that similar thought process in social media right now, you know, because I see a lot of posts about how social media is damaging. And But what I'm also suggesting to people is if you're having a bad experience on social media, you, are, you can curate your newsfeed. And if you're seeing posts that are just designed to make you angry and there's content out there designed to elicit an emotional response from you, change what you're seeing. You know, I had, you know, during my degree, I subscribed to a whole bunch of science pages and it was really cool because it was science posts. And then it reached this point where they'd stop becoming, they'd stop being about science posts as much as they started being about like, abuses and human rights violations of like children in american schools 
And it reached this point where I was logging onto social media and just becoming incredibly frustrated. And then typing out half an essay in a comment section. I'm like, wait a second, what am I what am I achieving here? I am just railing against someone in the USA who will never read this post. There's some school principal who's made a horrible decision. And while it is important to stand up for what's right, you've also got to take the choice of like when it is impacting your mental health and looking at when things are and aren't serving you. And it's the same in media, and I really do think that's why the last few years has been such a push for like wholesome memes, is because our media consumption, especially like during the last, I guess the last few years of like the thousands, was very focused on being edgy. And then we see that in like the series like Rick and Morty or Bojack Horseman, they're incredibly depressing and cynical. And that's fine. If that's what you want to engage in, that's fine. But also be wary, you know, as I've watched Bojack Horseman at a time when I shouldn't. And it sucked. It was just so depressing. It was too depressing. And we've got a you it's hundred percent right. The 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 food and nutrition analogy is perfect because there are cognitive hazards out there. And if all you're taking in is this specific media on these specific topics, it does affect your worldview. And that's again where we've got to have conversations that are empathic and validating. It's not as if you should stop because this is wrong. It's like, well, dude, friend, person, human being, please like think about how you're engaging and engage responsibly. And maybe if you're not vibing with it right now, just go play some Minecraft or listen to something chill because we do need that balance of our media content. You reminded me of Bojack Horseman. There's this one episode of where he's giving a eulogy for his mother. There's parts about it that are depressing, but the realism of challenges many, many people have with their relationships with their parents and orientations to their passing, I thought it was incredibly therapeutic. I, and people who are very close to me who, who have those challenges, I've recommended it so many times as one of the very best pieces of, I don't know, any collection, movie, any medium. This best captured for me the complexity of some of those challenges. So I don't know, but I get excited by naming complexity and challenge, mm. <laughs> whereas other people are really uh, discouraged by that. Once there's a more of a map or you know a light in the room or something, it all feels more navigable to me. So there's that. I I like when I'm sitting there watching a movie. And the point of it clicks, and I'm like, wow, this movie's about something. Uh, when I watched Zootopia, it was during my degree, and I'm sitting there watching Zootopia with my family, and I'm like, wow, this movie's about a lot of stuff. And I had the same thing with Pixar. They can just do this. Uh, Inside Out, I left that. I think I watched Inside Out a month before I started my degree, before I started studying. I'd quit my last job, and I was going to start working in mental health. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. This is just perfect. This is, de this is how depression works. This is a big conversation about grief is happening here as well. The complexity of the emotional experience in terms of you know, when everything turns from this, just these five emotions, these five core emotions, and it becomes, you know, sadness and happiness becomes bittersweet. And 
you know, anger and joy join together to form assertion and fun. And it's really awesome to just kind of have these aha moments as an adult and being like, oh, that's what this movie's about. I kind of realized when I was like seven or eight that the X-Men was about oppression. And that's like, again, one of my favorite conversations to have with people who maybe are new to comics or new to like the X-Men. And I can't wait for the MCU X-Men to start so I can have this conversation with even more people because that's been such a cool thing to think about. And I do love having those big conversations with people. And it's also why I can't watch Onward ever again. I don't know if you watched Onward last year. I feel like this movie doesn't get as much conversation as it deserves. It's absolutely brilliant, but it's also about a really specific experience of grief that just kicks my ass. And I can't watch that movie without crying. Oh, that was the D&D Trolls one. I did see that. Which one was that? Was yeah, the yeah, it was an urban Trolls. fantasy. They were elves? They were blue and had pointy ears. I think they were elves. And they were on a quest to resurrect their dad. Pixar released it like in June 2020. So like, still talking like height of the pandemic. And they released it online. I think it was one of the first big online releases. And yeah, I just watched that. And it broke me in a way that a movie hadn't for a long time. But Mike, you're inspiring an idea in me. And maybe you're already working on this. It sounds like it. Uh, a lot of people end up wanting to use the same approaches to deal with challenging experiences, like talking about it and journaling. And I see fewer people reach to reading things or consuming media that's related to what they're doing. I think partly because it's hard to find an appropriate one that you would relate to. I hear you listing out a whole bunch of things that might relate to a circumstance someone is in. Have you thought about that problem space and how would you navigate trying to help get people to the right media that helps them? Well, I kind of vibe on what people are already interested in, and I don't always give recommendations, but I will I will have chats about like to see what people, where people are and what they need. And if there's kind of an experience they're seeking, it hasn't been a big one for me because a lot of the clients I see are already into a lot of what, the stuff I'm into, and I end up getting more recommendations from them than I have to give. <laughs> But I use them to, again, it's for conversations. It's like, you know, have you watched this? Have you thought about this? And the conversation kind of goes, yeah, I've seen it. And this is what I thought. Or I haven't seen it. And here's why. And sometimes, you know, I'll have a conversation. So have you watched this movie? And people go, no, I really don't want to. Because I know what it's about. And I don't want to kind of go there yet. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Kind of riffing off of your thing, Casey, and tying in some of Mike's work with equipping schools better with mental health tools that having a little, um, I don't know, glossary of here's a challenge and like here's five different options. Like here's a poem and here's a movie and here's a video or song. That'd be amazing. I agree with you on Inside Out. My lap was so wet thinking, like, just the tears were streaming oh, out of my eyes thinking of all the young people who will now have language to be able to articulate what it is that they're feeling. Yeah. <laughs> There's actually really cool programs that use Inside Out in therapy, because I left that movie theater thinking about how I'm going to use this in therapy later. I hadn't even started my degree. I had no theoretical backdrop. But I was like, yeah, I'm going to use this. And then a year later, I'm at a school uh i'm taking my son to school and i see the classroom is covered in inside out stuff and i'm sitting there like oh my god this is better than i ever imagined 
and I love having these conversations and I love playing clips and stuff. You know, when I worked in schools, if we had a school competition and, you know, people would win and people didn't win, there'd always be someone who was really upset because they didn't win this thing, whether it was like a classroom, like rep election or sports stuff, you know, we'd always have conversations and I, I, I would go in and one of the most fun things I'd ever do is I'd fire up YouTube and I'd play that clip from Star, uh, Star Trek The Next Generation where Picard says, you know, it is possible to commit no mistakes and still lose. That's just the way life is sometimes. And I've probably written that on every other uh, board, every other like whiteboard in a classroom, because it's such a powerful quote and it's such an awesome way of just looking at Sometimes things don't turn out and we've got to deal with that and we've got to do the next thing. And then the next thing would be playing the clip from the dark Knight. It would say, you know, what, you know, what do we do when we fall master Bruce? We stand up and I plan playing that. And it was Batman. So it's a bit more approachable to the kids, but knowing these little bits from movies and stuff to really just tie in and begin a conversation. You reminded me of the montage at the end of Captain Marvel, where, like, despite all of the, you know, quote unquote powers she acquired through the accident, her true, like, strength came from her just consistently standing back up, no matter. And mm. it's just this she felt she gets knocked over, she gets insulted, she loses something. Like, it's just a lifetime of getting back up. I was pretty moved by that one too. Had a wet mm. lap after that one also. And I love it when movies can like lead to these inspiring conversations that this still worthy scene from Endgame when Thor goes back to Asgard and he's still able to call me on here and he's still worthy. And there's a whole conversation. I've written a whole article based on that scene alone. And I've seen people with tattoos of Mjolnir with like still worthy engraved into it. And it's just this really powerful and moving scene that, again, it starts a conversation. And I can see a lot of people out there who can resonate with that scene, especially when we look at worthiness is also like you know, our own inner worthiness and how we feel about ourselves, but also in the context of Thor's own story is that it wasn't worthy in just in general. It was worthy in the eyes of Odin. So at this point in the story, Odin had been dead for a long time, but Thor in that moment got re after everything he'd been through, he was not only still worthy of the hammer, but he was also worthy in his father's eyes, which was a big part of his own journey through the, through the movies. Yo. So after hanging out with you for a little while, Mike, there are like 47 people that I want to connect with you. And I <laughs> am curious about what sort of engagement is welcomed and where are your widest open doors and where are you headed next and how can we like support the amazing perspectives and work and experience that you have i mean the hardest part is is that i'm i'm in australia and i can't work with americans the u.s and canada is explicitly outside of my remit you've got to be so in in the usa in the usa you've got to be registered state by state uh, so even if I was in the USA, I could only work in the states I'm registered in, and that is a whole process for each state. Yeah, uh, I've been told it's expensive. 
And then it's tricky when I do stuff like the Reddit AMAs because I get messages like, hey, I'm in I'm in Florida and I want to see you. I'm like, well, I can't. But thankfully, I've used my superpower of networking to join a group called the Geek Therapy Community, where it's a whole bunch of geeky therapists sharing resources, sharing ideas and training. And I've got just I've just got a thread in there saying, hey, look, I get approached by Americans every now and again. Please tell me what state you're in and if you're open. And always try my best to like link people in when they message me. Currently looking for someone in Louisiana, but that one's being tricky. Yeah, it, it's a really good group. It's really supportive. It's really friendly. And it's just really open to having a conversation about, hey, look, I'm not really into this, but a lot of my clients are really vibing on this content. What can you share with me right now? So the big one at the moment, uh, the conversations have been around, well, Minecraft will never be out of the conversation <laughs> but also uh goblin slayer the anime and my hero academia are like consistent topics which is really cool i have to sit down and watch goblin slayer because i haven't yet but at the moment you know i'm running well i've got a facebook page where i share nerdy memes and stuff so my, like one of my favorite ones is uh thinking about spoon theory as spell slots from D. hmm what <laughs> yeah it's it's taken, I, I I don't know, it's not a meme, but it's just, I don't know what it's, it's a screen cap from Tumblr, and this person's therapist had kind of reconceptualized spoon theory into spell slot theory, but also talked about hyperfocus as a free action and, and a cantrip, so it's a what? bit more complex. Okay, okay, okay. I am totally nerding out right now, and I want to make sure that if you would be willing to say what spoon theory is... And what a cantrip is, some of these things. Um, yep. I, <laughs> so, I love that we're saying these words that I know. <laughs> and that's the yeah. point. That's what we're trying to accomplish here. We're trying to provide a common language. So for, the, for those uninitiated, spoon theory is a term used by people experiencing mental health and or disability to describe their energy levels. And you can look at any activity as... You have a set amount of spoons, and this changes per day. Sometimes you've only got a two or three spoon day, and different tasks have a spoon cost. So doing the dishes could cost you five spoons. If you are only having a 10 spoon day, doing the dishes is going to take it out of you. I actually saw a great TikTok recently. It was about, I'm still explaining spoon theory, but also everyone knows what a bones or no bones day is. And it's, this, it's a very similar concept. And then someone has adapted this, the Spoon Theory, to the Dungeons and Dragons uh, spell slots. So for the people who play D&D, spellcasters in, in Dungeons and Dragons get a set amount of spells they can cast per day. So this really translates really well into, I've got a certain amount of things I can do in a day before I'm burnt out, uh, and I need to take a rest. And then you've got cantrips, which are minor spells, but you can use them at no cost and there's sometimes there's things you can do if you're experiencing mental health or you've got a disability that you can do that don't cost a spoon it could be a hyper focus or it could be a piece of self-care that just really does it for you and it's really nice and it doesn't actually take an emotional toll to actually carry out this task yeah that's fantastic are there any other topics that you were hoping that we would touch on so at the moment, what I'm providing is D&D therapy. So I've got uh, one group a week. I'm looking to expand that to two or three groups a week. I'm looking at also branching out to different RPGs. Like, uh, I'm really excited for the Avatar RPG. 
that should be coming out early next year. I've already got a quick start copy, and that's looking like a whole lot of fun. I'm hoping to start a Star Wars RPG or a Warhammer 40k RPG group, because I was dead slash not taunted but heckled at a convention someone says i bet you can't turn 40k into an rpg it's true depress into a therapy rpg it's true depressing and i did it and now i don't have a group to run run it for <laughs> uh but it's a you know the warhammer 40k universe is an is a universe where your emotions become psychic energy which can become demons and I really can't think of a better setting in which you go out and literally slay your demons. Whoa, yes. I wow, did not what know a good about framing. this and love that framing. Mm. That's the hope, is to create a story. I've created a storyline uh, where players are going to go out and literally to slay their demons. Because we see in Warhammer 40k, there's actually demons that have arisen from specific experiences you know there's a demon that was brought into existence when the first sentient life form killed another one it's called the echo of the first murder and it's super depresso and a bit gar it's super goth but i <laughs> love it because it kind of gives you this idea that there is a demon out there that could be made up of kind of what you've been through and you can go out there and banish it and seal it you kind of go on this own, this own adventure, of literally facing your demons. That sounds so powerful. I can't wait to hear how it goes when you get to do this on people. It'll be a fun one. See, that's kind of what I'm doing in the RPG world right now. I'm doing uh, more gaming therapy, so we're playing Civ, uh, doing a lot of Minecraft, because Minecraft's just so easy to access. Uh, Minecraft, Roblox, and Civ at the moment. Just to give, for people who fidget, for neurodiverse people who kind of like myself, you may have noticed on camera, I don't sit still. <laughs> I do better as well if I've got something to do. And so do some of the people I see. So we play Minecraft and we do things. We, we share an activity. It's the same kind of mindset that leads to like just going out for a walk with someone and having a big talk. It's like, you know, let's, let's, build, a, let's build a castle and go find some diamonds. Yeah, there's such a difference between two people facing each other. Like, even if you're in some therapeutic relationship, you know it's friendly, there is still that hint of confrontation. And like you were saying, you're both looking at a screen, you're both going for a walk, suddenly you're both looking forward, and it takes that level of pressure down. That's it's so so useful. It really does. It's really, it's just a nice way of doing things, especially for like kids and younger teens who, if they're being sat down and confronted with someone in the past, it's probably because they've been in trouble. Uh, so this way it's just look we can sit down we can vibe we can build something and we can even like use the game to power the conversation minecraft is a great one because there's so many resources for it but we can talk about filling needs or what do we need uh we can build little stations for mental health check-ins which i've got on my page or we can even just kind of ad lib not ad libs like imp uh, do a lot of i do a lot of improv sort of stuff so we got attacked by zombies in one game because i never play on peaceful and we got attacked by zombies so we had to like very hastily build some walls and we built a built a house that could withstand attack and kind of punctuated that with a conversation and, you know where do you go when you don't feel safe or what can you do if you need to feel safe and we talked about like self-care and self-supporting and self-soothing from that are you familiar with uh the book my grandmother's hands and resma manikem's work no, I am not. When you were talking about the Warhammer 40k 
and going out and slaying the demons that have arisen from certain experiences. Like Resma's basically premise is that a lot of our current social justice challenges and racial challenges have to do with the fact that we have transferred experiences of trauma through like physical by having children like we physically inherit it and the reason we haven't been able to solve a lot of these problems is that we are focusing on our thoughts about them and and there's a whole transformation of physical healing that if we can engage at that level then we've got a shot at some of this intergenerational trauma stuff yeah, intergenerational and epigenetic trauma is such a huge topic, and it's something we are learning more about. It blew me away to first learn about it at uni, but it's also one of those topics that is, we we're only really starting to see the effects, and we're really only starting to start to get an understanding. To, to, in, my, in my knowledge, I could be wrong, because it's not my area of speciality, but from what I am seeing, We've still got a whole lot to learn on this topic. It's going to be incredibly profound to just to start learning about the effects these things can have in the long term. Yeah. Well, I want to define epigenetics for the audience. I studied this in undergrad. Epigenetics is like the genetics, like TAGC codon pairs, but it's the part like how they wrap around spools in the body and then the spools might be tight or loose. So different spools of DNA in your body are tighter or looser, and that gets passed down generation to generation. And we can't measure it as well. It's harder to measure, so we know a lot less about it than we do TAGC DNA base pairs. Anyway, it's heritable. That's the main takeaway for here. But science nerd nugget. I think the, uh, one of the big ones is that our experiences are things, yeah, as you said, they're heritable. We can pass stuff down, and our genetics can change with us. I thought that was really, that was a huge read, especially when we talk about like um, pat- like cycles and patterns of disadvantage. Yeah, th- there's not only the social machinery that's that's reinforcing the disadvantage, but then you've also got it, you know, coming directly into the biology as well. Mm. Thank you for the book. I'll have a look at that. Yeah, I think you'd really love it. And if you do check it out, I totally want to talk to you about it. In fact, I'm finding it hard to not bring up a whole bunch more topics. <laughs> but we have been on a while and uh, it might be time to transition to reflections. Even though I don't really want to right now. <laughs> yeah, me too. I've got notes of things I could bring up. We're not going to get to. I am always happy to come back. I have. Oh, cool. Good, good. Cool. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think like that, like you, me, and, and Casey are, are, I think we're all having lots of ideas swirling around in, in our heads. And one of the, one of the ones that's popped up just as, as you were talking about, uh, specifically the work you were doing with RPGs and, and DD and, and 40K and all those, uh, it just reminded me there's, the, I've kickstarted, uh, it's, it's just about out, uh, an RPG called Coyote and Crow which is set in uh, um, sort of an alternate history of indigenous people in the United States uh, in an alternate history where colonization didn't happen. Mm. Yeah. And they've, they've built a whole structure for around this and they're using all native artists and writers and publicists and the whole thing. They're doing amazing stuff there. But I think 
having a context like that, uh, again, allows you to like, especially if you were working with someone who was indigenous or with another disadvantage, like being able to use the structure of the game to also talk about their experience of being indigenous and how that is one of the intersections that is affecting that person. And, and like, there are just so many layers that, that you can, you can go through with all this. It, it, it strikes me that there's such massive potential through all of it. And uh, it's, it's actually interesting because, you know, for the long, you know, I've been in and out of therapy various times over the years. And, and I know that some therapists like to do like role-playing where you take on various people and, or talk to certain people. And that idea had always somewhat terrified me perhaps because the thing I need to work on is there. But now that I've been doing D and D for a couple of years, I have more experience with role-playing in a less emotionally fraught context. And so that gives me that that little bit extra comfort with the idea of doing such a thing in a therapeutic context and and even more particular if there was a therapeutic context that was even spinning in all of the the world of D&D like that seems like that would make me even more comfortable so it, it's just really fascinating how bringing in all these extra concepts can cut through baggage and things for people to to get to to doing the work that is most going to be good for them without just in shortcutting so much of the, the fight you have to get to get there. It makes it easier to talk about something. It's your, it's every conversation when I was young, I started with, Oh, my friend, uh, my friend is going through this. It makes it easy to talk about something. If it doesn't have to be about you, it does also lead to nuance. And you do have to, when you're, when you're an RPG therapist, you'd have to ask questions like, Hey, is this just your character's tragic backstory? <laughs> Or are you going through something we need to talk about? And asking that question has been an interesting one because I do prefer that my players make as much as they can of themselves into their characters. But I also don't require it because they may not be ready yet. Even to just admit something about their character could be huge for them. But it is it is huge. And I'm, I'm loving this. And you know, I'm a proponent and an advocate for social justice. And I love seeing projects like this. I've been following it on... I can't remember what page I've been seeing it posted. I think it's called I'm Begging You to Play Another RPG is where that's being posted. Mm-hmm. And I'm really into it. And I've been really tempted to get some sort of qualification in teaching so I can kind of lean more into an education perspective with these because there's an awesome opportunities for social and emotional education. In my own campaigns, I use a homebrew world called Advantasia, and it's actually based on the... Well, it's based on where I live in the world, so it's Australia. It's a, not not quite Australia. It's a typical Nordo-European uh, fantasy world, but continentally, it's similar to Australia. It's it's in the Southern Hemisphere and stuff. But this uh, the weather cycles, the calendar used in Advantasia is the same one used as the indigenous people of the land where I'm living. They don't have the four season model. They actually have a season model that actually fits where I live. They've got a six-season model, so there's two months for every season. And it just fits way better than the autumn, summer, winter, spring seasons we have here. We've got Barak, which is December and January. It's just hot and it's dry. And then Bunudu is February and March. And it's it's still hot, but it's also like a, a humid kind of heat. And then in April and May, we've got Jeren, which it's starting to get cooler. And then June and July is uh, Mercuru. It's, it's cold and wet and there's stormy and then august and september is jilba and it's 
getting warmer, but it's still quite hot. It's still quite wet and windy. And then October and November, where we are now, is Cambodang, and it's uh, it's longer. It's more dry periods, and we're kind of starting into the summer. And it's just a way more nuanced look at the world. And I include this in my settings so that not only can players experience like, learn about mental health, but they're also learning about part of their world where they live and how we can actually ways we can look at the world in a better way. I love that ways we can look at the world in a better way. Um, look at the world and ourselves <laughs> in a better way. I think the thing that struck me the most out of this conversation, like if I, I have to pick one thing or one theme, it'd be, I really appreciate the way in which like the pragmatic approach that you're taking of like, this is where people are. Let's just hang out there. <laughs> and like, yeah. regardless of what all the other philosophy, politics, opinions, blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, how about we just hang with the people? So I really appreciate being reminded to continuously work on starting from there and connecting from there. Well, we have a saying, well, there's a saying, it's a bit of a maximum therapy, it's called meet people where they are. And that's often about not invalidating people because of the way they're seeing the world or not belittling people because you know someone else might have it worse than them. It's just about understanding this person and how they see the world and just being with them where they are. And I'm to me, what I'm doing is just taking that to its next, to its rational next step is especially during you know the past let's gonna say the past 18 months has really highlighted a need for online services and you know a lot of therapists play like flash games like this browser-based uno or battleship or something and i'm just kind of going well we could do that we could also play minecraft <laughs> so this is meeting people where they are how about you casey do you have um something that struck you or that you're going home with? Yeah, I keep thinking about, I didn't want to talk about myself so much on this call, but I've been working on a board game for doing mental health skills for middle schoolers. Um, but that, I was very happy to talk about the D&D themes today instead of that. But I keep thinking about how my approach is to help the people, help the middle schoolers talk to their friends in a structured way where the structure helps them talk about things they wouldn't normally be able to or think to or they wouldn't be prompted to. And I've playtested it a lot. It's really successful. People love playing it, but they don't always know they'd love to play it because it's not something they're going for already. I wish I could talk to my friends over a board game. So I don't know about the marketing side of this thing. It might be more helpful as a tool for therapists to bring out with a group of middle schoolers who want to talk to each other. But anyway, my takeaway is also meet them where they are. That sounds so powerful when you just get on Among Us or Minecraft with them where they're at. Mm. The barrier is so low. And then they still get that engagement, like they're fidgeting or whatever that they need to do to get comfortable. And that's really powerful. I would love to see this board game. I think schools need more tools. And that's kind of, you know, I was working in schools. I was working in schools and in my private practice when I developed uh, RPG therapy, my RPG therapy program. Um but it's also the kind of stuff that would be really helpful for schools. And I would love to see that because anything which we can use to kind of empower connection with people is incredibly, well, it's incredibly vital, but it's also very beautiful. All right, Mike, how about you? Do you have any takeaways, any insight you got today on the call with us that you're going to take with you? 
It can be something you said too. It doesn't have to be. <laughs> I've done a lot of talking today. Again, I think my reflection is actually from what you've just mentioned is that you could have something really special. And this does sound something that's really awesome and really special, this board game you've designed. But the hardest part about doing something is helping people know you're doing it. There's a bit of a negative connotation to like networking. And especially here in Australia, we're not too big on talking about ourselves in a positive way. We have cultural values against that. But I feel like there's a really important need for people who are doing good work to be able to talk about it in a positive way. Because I guarantee you there's a whole lot of really awesome stuff being done out there, but people aren't talking about it because they fear being accused of being like self-aggrandizing or looking for attention. When at the end of the day, if we can build awareness that there's other ways to do things or that there's new ways of doing things, we can hopefully inspire and empower. I love that it comes back to networking, which is your superpower, as we said at the very beginning. I was I was really tempted to not list that as my superpower, but I am continually told that it is. It's one of those tricky ones. We have a thing here in Australia called uh, tall puppy syndrome. It's a person who is conspicuously successful and whose success frequently attracts envious hostility. And it's just, what is it? The, the nail that stands out gets the hammer. And it's just this kind of this cultural value of just not being self-aggrandizing. There's also finding that happy medium where you are happy to talk about yourself and what you're doing in a way that gets gets it out there. Yeah. Because I reckon there's a whole lot of really cool stuff out there that isn't being talked about because people are a little bit shy or just might not want to be seen as talking themselves up too much. And then getting over that hump of being shy, then you have to get over the other hump of finding the right people to talk to. And that's like the marketing and sales aspect. That's my head's been. I started my own business this year and I don't know much Congrats. about marketing and sales. Thank you. Well, I do now, but six, uh, 12 months ago, I do so much less than I do now. I can I understand that. I went full time in my practice six weeks ago. Uh, until recently, I was working. Thank you. Until recently, I was just working, you know, in schools, and then I went to a youth not-for-profit. And then, yeah, six weeks ago, I just kind of had this opportunity where I was getting emails daily. And I'm like, look, I, I see two people a week. That's all I've got room for. Um, two people in a D and D group a week. And then I just kind of looked at all the people who'd sent me an email. I was like, oh, okay, I could go full time if I, if all these people say yes. So I gave notice, and it's been a hell of an experience. That's awesome. Congrats. I love this trend. Thank you. People are starting more small businesses. Another therapist yeah. friend of mine, she just started her own small practice. It's booming. I like this trend for our economy, too. Hmm. It's a, it's a trend. I hope it sticks. Yeah, it's really cool because it lets people do their thing. Yeah. It lets people live their passion and their authenticity. And it kind of creates this environment where we have a lot more diversity and people can be who they are. And if we can make these small innovative businesses work, we're going to see a lot more diversity in our services we can deliver because we're not tied to an organization that says you will conform or an organization says, no, you won't have a social media presence. No, you won't talk to the press about things. You just got a great image in my head. We want to be rainbow pinwheels, not gray cogs. <laughs> I want more of this. That's, that's very true. I'm ready for that plan, Casey. <sighs> it's spinning. One thing I see a lot of is there's a, 
there's a D&D resource coming out of the Bristol Children's Hospital, and they created the Oath of Accessibility. It is a paladin subclass. It's the whole point is to create accessibility tools for D&D, and it's awesome. They do some really good stuff. But they have this tagline, and I think it's really special. It is, anyone can be a hero, and everyone deserves to go on an adventure. I love it. What a great Yeah, That's true. That's a great place to end it. Yeah.